now to the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. Never preached before on this text. It was a wonderfully interesting study this past week, and God helping us, we'll make an effort to understand the mind of the Spirit of God speaking to us from this ancient prophecy of the coming of Messiah and his birth to a virgin mother. We'll read verses 7 through, uh, seven, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Verses 18 to the end elaborate the disaster that is going to overtake Judah as a result of her rebellion. And then verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, the birth of Isaiah's second son, a mayor Shalal Hashbaz, uh, about which we will uh, say something uh, later. The 17 verses we're about to read contain an account of a conversation within its historical context between Isaiah the prophet and Ahaz, the young king of Judah, who, alas, did not serve the Lord as his father and grandfather had done. Isaiah urged upon him trust in God and God's promise as the true solution to his political and military problems, but Ahaz instead was to put his trust in political maneuvering that he felt would get himself out of the mess he was in, but which eventually was to prove Judah's undoing. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, that is Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. The date is approximately 735 B.C., and the situation is a desperate bid by Israel and Syria to unite their neighbors against the menace of an all-conquering Assyria from the east, which is threatening that entire part of the world with conquest. When Judah refused to enter the alliance against Assyria, Israel and Syria attempted to replace Ahaz with their own man, Ben-Tabil, whose name you will see in verse 6. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. Uh, Isaiah, by giving his first son that name, provided Judah with a portent of its future. A remnant will return. There will be a remnant, but it will have to return from exile where it has been sent on account of its sin, and there will only be a remnant. Not the entire people will survive. An interesting aside, you remember that uh, up until this time, water was brought into the city of Jerusalem by aqueducts, and especially this aqueduct that is uh, made reference to here in verse 3. It was Hezekiah, a king, two kings later, who built the famous uh, tunnel through the rock that brought water into the city more safely and uh, away from the reach of invading armies. 
and uh, made Jerusalem much more difficult to take as a military uh, target than it had been before when the water could be cut off and the population quickly brought to submission. That the discovery of Hezekiah's trench or tunnel was one of the great archaeological finds of the 20th century. This is the message. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. The 65 years refers to the not, not to the destruction of Samaria by the Assyrians, which happened in 721 B.C., therefore only 13, 14 years later than this, but probably refers to the importation of other peoples to populate the land from which the population of Israel had been deported, therefore putting forever an end to that nation and to that distinct people, what, what we know as the ten northern tribes of Israel. The northern kingdom had chosen to trust man and not God, and so had sealed its doom. If Judah follows her in this course, Isaiah is warning Ahaz, in, if she follows Israel in unbelief and reliance on herself, she will come to the same disastrous end. Faith is everything, Isaiah says. This is the victory that overcomes the world, and also Remaliah's son, and also Syria, and the Assyrians. And later on, under Hezekiah, it would be the victory that at least momentarily conquered the Assyrians, you remember, when the angel of the Lord struck 186,000 of them dead in their camp as they besieged the city of Jerusalem. Judah doesn't need to fear. Her enemies are only men, and what paltry men. While Judah could have the protection of God himself. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. The opportunity now lies before Ahaz to act as a believer in God. Here, seeking a sign would be an act of believing commitment, a taking of God at his word, and effectively the enactment of the famous prayer of the man in the Gospels. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. With this sign, strengthen my trust in you. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, there is a kind of asking God for signs that is sinful, a testing of God. It amounts to saying, I'm not going to believe what God says unless he first proves himself to me. And that would be sin. To ask a sign in that spirit is proof that one does not really believe. But to refuse an offered sign is a proof that one does not want to believe. The Lord loves to be trusted, offers to strengthen our trust, our faith. Ahaz is certainly. 
to refuse that offer is to demonstrate that he does not even want to believe. And the narrative of both kings, that both kings and chronicles give of the reign of King Ahaz uh, shows us clearly enough that faith in God was not part of Ahaz's politics or his religion. Behind the pious talk, behind this shrouding his unwillingness to face the spiritual realities of his situation, behind this veil of piety and piousness that uh, Ahaz gives us in verse 12, lay plans to outwit his enemies by making friends with the deadliest enemy of them all. Ahaz's strategy was to go ahead and co-opt the Syrian and Israelite advance against him by entering into alliance with Assyria itself. Have Assyria take care of the two northern kingdoms on his behalf and then leave him alone because he was a loyal friend. What kind of friend Assyria would eventually prove to be, Isaiah indicates in verse 17. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. The you in verses 13 and 14 is now plural, not singular as it was the your in verse 11. He is now addressing not simply Ahaz in isolation, but the entirety of the nation and people of God, and especially the whole house of Judah, the house of David, the succession of, of uh, Jewish kings that would follow after Ahaz. Curds and honey uh, is not the same diet as milk and honey. This diet, as verses 21 and 22 will show, indicates poverty, a time of distress. The judgment of God will have brought devastation upon Judah, and it will be into this poverty and this devastation that the child will be born. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now it's you singular, Ahaz again. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Father in heaven, by thy spirit, that same spirit by which Isaiah was able to prophesy the birth of Jesus Christ seven centuries before it occurred, illuminate this passage, this text, this message, this promise and this warning for us today. And make, O oh God, thy truth to live in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. This morning we have before us one of the most celebrated of the ancient prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Isaiah 7:14, you may remember, is cited in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, as being fulfilled in the circumstances of the birth of Jesus. Mary, his mother, was a virgin, as Isaiah the prophet had foretold. It is not, as you may know, a prophecy in isolation. Chapters 7 through 11 
of Isaiah have often been referred to as the book of Emmanuel and contain not only the prophecy of the virgin birth of this child in chapter 7, but also even more substantial accounts of his nature. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and also of his reign. He will reign on the throne of David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and so on. All of that you find in chapters 9 and 11. Now, there is no doubt, however, that Isaiah 7:14 poses special problems amongst all of these prophecies of the coming birth of the Savior, and perhaps it won't surprise you to learn that many skeptics through the ages have argued that in its original context, in the days of King Ahaz of Judah, it could not have meant what Matthew took it to mean uh, concerning the birth of Jesus, the son of Mary. It could not really have been a prophecy of a virgin-born Messiah who was not to appear for another seven centuries. You will hear three major objections to Matthew's interpretation of Isaiah 7.14 as a prophecy, a prediction of Christ's virgin birth. First, it has long been argued by some that the Hebrew word translated virgin in verse 14 is not, in fact, the Hebrew word for virgin, and that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament executed two centuries before the birth of Jesus, in translating that word with the Greek word that means virgin, actually made an error. And it was because of that error that the idea of the virgin birth was brought into Matthew's Gospel account and then into Luke's. The Hebrew word is Alma, and it has been widely claimed that unlike the Hebrew word Betula, which is supposedly a technical term for virginity, Alma means only young woman, any young woman. The facts, however, are these, and I noticed in my study this week that they are more widely admitted nowadays than once they were. Alma is never used in the Bible or in extra-biblical literature of a married woman. And where the context provides a basis for judgment, it always refers specifically to a virgin. It is true, the context does not always provide such a basis, but when it does, it refers specifically to a virgin. For example, in Genesis 24, Rebekah, when Abraham's servant first meets her, is referred to as an Alma. And in context, what is meant is a virgin female, marriageable, but unmarried. It's interesting, in that same Genesis 24, Betula is used also to describe Rebecca. In fact, recent studies of Betula indicate that it is no more a technical term for virginity than Alma. Alma is a word that means generally a virgin young woman not yet married. In other words, it is a term outgrown at either sexual experience or marriage. If Isaiah had wanted to say specifically that the child would be born to a virgin, it is not known what word he might have chosen from the Hebrew language that would have more clearly expressed that point than the one he used. That is not to say, however, 
that he might not have made it still more explicit had he wanted to. He could have said, an Alma who had never lain with a man, a statement such as that. So there was still more light to break forth, and it did, of course, in the circumstances of the Savior's birth. In any case, not to put too fine a point on it, the Septuagint translators got it right, and the skeptical scholars should have known that all along. Martin Luther, centuries ago, promised to give a hundred gulden to anyone who could show that Alma ever referred to a married woman. And then in characteristic fashion, he added, the Lord alone knew where he would get them. So far, no one has collected the hundred gulden. So reading Isaiah's Hebrew naturally, we conclude that he is prophesying a virgin birth. Second, it's argued, how could the birth of a child seven centuries later be any sign to Ahaz? Does the sign in this context not have to speak to the very king who refused it in the first place? Well, a number of replies may be made. First, it is not this sign that Ahaz refused. God offered to him any sign that he wanted, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. He might, as Hezekiah some years later, have asked that the sun's shadow move backward on the steps. His refusal to um, ask for a sign set God free to respond with a sign of his own and of his own choosing. Second, as I pointed out when reading the text, there's a change in the number of the pronoun in those verses. The sign of verse 14 is not to Ahaz personally only, but to the house of David and the people of Judah as a whole. The sense seems clear that the scope of the sign is larger, its significance is larger, uh, and than that it would have been had it been addressed to Ahaz alone. But still more, the sign has a message no matter what the time of the appearance of this child. Take verses 14 through 17 together, and the message is this. There is doom on Judah's horizon for her unbelief and her rebellion against God. And there is doom on that horizon, political, economic, religious and social doom, catastrophe, even though the enemies that Ahaz now fears will soon be no more. But there is also in the future the hope of something better, the birth of the Messiah, Emmanuel. The message of the sign, in other words, is the message of the whole passage. It's the message of the whole prophecy of Isaiah. God is going to come against his people most savagely for their unbelief and disobedience to him. But God will not forsake his people altogether. A remnant will return, as the name of Isaiah's son indicated. And though faithless generations of this people will be punished and rejected, eventually God will return to them, and succeeding generations will know his mercy. So the message of the sign is so perfectly in keeping with the entire context of the passage. The third objection to taking Isaiah 7:14 as a prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus is that in the context, it is claimed, it seems rather to refer to the birth of Isaiah's own son, which is recorded immediately afterward. We didn't read 8 verses 1 through 4, 
which relates the birth of Mayor Shalal Hashbaz, which means in J.B. Phillips-inspired translation, quick pickings, easy prey, and is a description of how easy it's going to be for Assyria to make short work of Syria and Israel when it moves against them. Now, there's a certain plausibility in this objection. A child is promised in 714. A child's birth is, re is related in 8, 1 through 4. Might it not be easily assumed that the latter is the fulfillment of the former? But actually, it's perfectly clear that this is a second sign, a sign for the more immediate future, and is not and could not have been the promised child of chapter 714. Derek Kidner summarizes the situation this way. The sign of Emmanuel, although it concerned ultimate events, did imply a pledge for the immediate future in that however soon Emmanuel were born, the present threat would have passed before he would even be aware of it. But the time of his birth was undisclosed, hence the new sign is given to deal only with the contemporary scene. Before Isaiah's second son is old enough to be able to say father or mother, Israel and Syria will be no more and prove uh, no danger and pose no threat to the southern kingdom. That that's a faithful summary of the situation and that Mayor Shalal Hashbaz is not the promised child of 714 appears from a variety of facts. First, he's not called Emmanuel. Indeed, the reference to Emmanuel in chapter 8, verse 8, the only other reference to that name in this section, indicates not only that this is not a reference to Mayor Shalal Hashbaz, but that the Emmanuel that has been promised is in some significant way the owner, the heir of the land and the kingdom of Israel. But that's not true of this young son of Isaiah, and nothing of the kind is suggested of him. Second, Isaiah's wife is not, at this time, an Alma. She is not only married, but this is at least her second child. It is certainly her second son. We've already been introduced to Shir Jashub in chapter 7. As a sign, the birth of this promised child, according to 714, must at the very least be in some respect remarkable. And there's nothing remarkable about this birth of Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Only the name is significant and hardly remarkable. People were always giving those kinds of significant names to their children, and Isaiah had already given one to his first son. Fourth, the other prophecies of this section in the book of Emmanuel concerning the birth of this wonderful child, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and so on. Especially those remarks in chapters 9 and 11 clearly do not refer to Isaiah's son and could not refer rather to an extraordinary personage, someone who could be referred to as the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. And then finally we have as Christians the authority of the New Testament that tells us who the virgin-born child was of whom Isaiah was speaking some 700 years before. Jesus, the son of Mary and no one else. In other words, despite the objections that have been raised through the years, this prophecy seven centuries before his birth 
of a virgin-born child who would save the world is just as remarkable and just as specific as Christians have always thought it was. Now I want to conclude by pointing out that the context of this prophecy sheds important light on its meaning. When the Messiah is offered as a sign to those whose hearts are hard against the Lord and at a time when mortal enemies loom over the people of God on account of their unbelief and sin against God, the issues of life and of salvation in Christ become all the more clear. If you had been there, if you had seen what Assyria did to the nations it conquered, the cruelty, the lack of mercy, if you had seen what Assyria was later to do to Judah and then what Babylon did to Judah, carrying away the few people that were left to slavery in Babylon and leaving not one stone on top of another in the city of Jerusalem, you would think differently about this promised child who was promised to God's people at that time and for that time. You see, the context of the prophecy poses Emmanuel as the alternative, and that in several ways. We're given to see a contrast between salvation on the one hand and divine wrath on the other. You have it again and again in the gospel narratives of Christ's birth. When Mary sung her song of praise after learning the role she was to play as the mother of the Savior, she thought to say, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, Ahaz included, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. Simeon, when he saw the baby Jesus a few days later presented in the temple, he prophesied this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that is spoken against. When his birth was prophesied seven centuries before, it was part of a judgment pronounced against an unbelieving and wicked king and his people. That somewhat takes us aback and surprises us that it should be judgment to hear that a virgin will bear a child and his name will be Emmanuel. And when he came into the world, Emmanuel, it was the last great act of judgment against a whole people who had rejected the covenant God had made with them. His appearance was salvation to some, but it was doomed to more. He was a sign that they rejected, a stone they stumbled over, and the true condition of their hearts was laid bare by his appearance, just as Ahaz's had been long before when Emmanuel was promised. Jesus is the alternative to the Assyrians. One may expect one fate or the other. The Assyrians proved a terrible end. They eventually destroyed those who trusted in them. Christ, on the other hand, gave life forever to those who believed in him. Second, we see the alternative between present appearances and the real condition of someone's life and destiny. For a few years, it seemed to Ahaz that he could deflect the danger posed by these mortal enemies. 
he thought he had found a way. He believed for a while that this was really going to work. Nothing terrible had yet happened. He'd beaten back the Israelites and the Syrians. It seemed as though he had contrived a way. And contrarily, the promise made that he was supposed to receive, upon which he was supposed to build his life and his hopes for safety for himself and his kingdom, was not realized for 700 years. That's a long time. We just celebrated a few years ago the bicentennial, the 200th birthday of the United States. 700 years. Christopher Columbus had not discovered the new world 700 years ago. The Reformation had not occurred 700 years ago. John Huss had not been burned at the stake 700 years ago. The printing press had not been invented 700 years ago. And just the same today. Like Ahaz, nobody fears the divine wrath. The people you're rubbing shoulders with day in, day out, they're not afraid of the wrath of God. They don't think about it. It isn't a specter looming over their days and their nights. They don't shudder to think what must befall those whose sins are not forgiven in Christ. And they do not because although they have chosen the path of sin and ignoring God and treating Him with indifference and His Word with indifference, if not positive unbelief, though they have chosen that path for themselves, they're enjoying it. They have not yet paid for that choice. They may not pay for it for years. And so like Ahaz, they imagine they will never have to pay. Jesus is the alternative to the Assyrians. You can have the Assyrians. The deceitful pleasures of sin now for a short while and misery and exile and slavery and woe forever. Or you can wait and wait and wait and wait like Simeon did all his life long for Jesus Christ, waiting for what nobody else around him cared for at all, waiting for what seemed never to come. And for his pains, he got everlasting joy in the city of God. And then the context poses the alternative also in terms of the two life principles. This is Isaiah's great interest in the chapter. He's urging on Ahaz faith. Faith is the key. Just believe in God. Just take his word to be true and build your life on it. He's saying the only way a man or a woman, a people, a church can have God is to rely upon him, to trust their lives to him, to act on the basis of what he has said, to take it to be true with full seriousness, the fullest conceivable seriousness, and especially the provision God makes for our deliverance and our salvation in Jesus Christ. Ahaz thought he could manage the Assyrians in some other way. 
And men and women today suppose they can manage their relationship with God. The success or the failure of their life, their standing, their destiny by themselves. But it is impossible. God has said it and he has illustrated it a thousand times over before our eyes. God has told us what we must do. He has given us the truth we must believe. He has sent his son in whom we must hope. It's that or the Assyrians. Take your pick. Neil Postman, in his wonderful book, Technopoly, discusses what he calls the great symbol drain. By imagining a television commercial for a new California Chardonnay, and he says in introducing this that if you think that such a commercial is unlikely in your lifetime, you should think again, because such commercials are already actually beginning to appear. Jesus is standing alone in a desert oasis. A gentle breeze flutters the leaves of the stately palms behind him. Soft Mideastern music caresses the air. Jesus holds in his hand a bottle of wine at which he gazes adoringly. Turning toward the camera, he says, When I transformed water into wine at Cana, this is what I had in mind. Try it today. You'll become a believer. Postman is speaking about the trivialization of symbols in our technological culture. Because he argues the adoration of technology preempts all other adorations, and because symbols can be so promiscuously and powerfully employed in our visual age with television and print and all the rest, computers, it was inevitable that they would be overemployed in this way, and especially at the behest of commercial interests. Martin Luther King Jr. Day becomes an occasion for furniture store sales, President's Day for linen sales, and so on. This is not blasphemy, Postman accurately says, not blasphemy per se, for blasphemy at least takes the subject, the symbol, the sign, seriously. What this is, is trivialization. And in many cases, at least at the surface, it is probably unwitting and unintended. Christmas, of course, has served this purpose and has long been the occasion of this trivialization for a long time. Christ's birth is used as an occasion for commercial interest to exploit the sacred history for the sake of sales. And in doing so, Christ himself and that history are trivialized. They're rendered impotent, insignificant. Emmanuel is no longer as important as the goods and services he helps retailers to move. This, you see, is what we must protest with might and main, and first in our own hearts and our own minds. And the context of Isaiah 7:14, and indeed the context of many of the other prophecies of Christ's coming, will help us. For there we see so clearly that Emmanuel is not a mere symbol of holiday cheer, of family love, of high spirits made higher by the spending of lots of money at this time of year. He is rather the provision that God has made and the sole provision to deliver his people from a desperate woe that has already consumed 
vast multitudes of them. He stands at the center of a great contest between good and evil that is being waged in every human life and in the whole of human history which contest has already seen evil consume multitudes of human beings. And that is what makes him so indescribably magnificent and precious and important and so terrifyingly sacred. And that's why any form of trivialization is such a terrible and a dangerous crime against God and against man and against the truth. This is the one thing that must be believed if a human being is to come into the purpose and the fulfillment of his or her life. This is the great issue. There is no other, though our culture imagines that there are many other issues much more pressing and immediately important than this. In this they are completely wrong as fundamentally as Ahaz was wrong. He thought the real issue for him was somehow or another figuring out a way to get Syria and Israel off his back and make peace with the Assyrians before they did any damage to his reign and his kingdom. And Isaiah comes to him and says, no, that's nothing, nothing. All of that will take care of itself if only, only you will believe, really believe that whenever it happens, someday a virgin is going to bear a child. And today, in a day almost exactly like Ahaz's in every way that matters, vast multitudes of people still imagine that all sorts of things matter so much more than the fact that 20 centuries ago that virgin did bear a son, just as Isaiah said she would. This is the great issue of human life. If you embrace this with a true and living faith, you are safe now and forever, and you will discover what it was God had in mind when he gave you life to live. And if you do not embrace this, God forbid, if you do not embrace this, you will never know until it is too late that you missed the entire secret and meaning and explanation of your life. Amen. For our final hymn, also the insert in the bulletin.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Heavenly Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Oh.